This episode is sponsored by Unique One Network. This is Opinionated, a roundtable debate that fascinates with each new thought-provoking guest, the place to convey strong ideas and at times the casual controversy. Join Features Editor Ben Schiller and reporters Anna Batakova and Danny Nelson as they push the conversation further with their own criticisms and reactions to the latest Bitcoin and crypto news from around the world. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hi, everybody. This is Opinionated. I'm Ben Schiller, the opinion editor here at Coindesk. And joining me are Anna Bedakova and Danny Nelson. Hey, too. Hello. And our special guest this week is Angela Welsh. She is a professor of law at St. Mary's University School of Law at San Antonio, Texas, and a research associate at the Center for Blockchain Technologies at the University College of London. So we wanted to talk to you, Angela, about the recent debates in Washington over the infrastructure bill and particularly the crypto tax amendment, which was so controversial amongst the uh, crypto community. So quick recap there. I mean, there were strenuous efforts to either amend or, or kill that provision in the bill. People were very energized and mobilized by this debate. And a lot of people are calling for more lobbying and advocacy firepower in DC to back the crypto community's agenda. And but secondly, uh, a lot of people were saying that it was kind of a coming to Jesus moment that crypto really arrived in the capital and that it's really here to stay because uh, anything taxed by government is uh, sort of grudgingly appreciated or approved by government. So you offered some testimony to the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs. And you also wrote an op-ed for Coindesk where you criticized the process by which this provision was coming into action. And basically, I hope I'm getting this right. You, you were arguing that crypto is like a very large $2 trillion industry now, and it's too complex and systemically important to be regulated as part of this sort of massive bill that wasn't really about cryptocurrency. So first question, how do you feel the Senate debate went? And what do you think the implications are going forward for how crypto is regulated in DC? Sure. So I think we learned a whole lot from this process. You know, I wrote that op-ed kind of at the beginning of the whole amendment process. And my feelings about it didn't really change through the whole drama that we saw. We learned, first of all, that it's not a good idea to try to regulate crypto through, through anything other than a process that takes into account its realities, how it's similar to and different from the existing financial system, that brings in the right people, lots of technologists, a diverse group of people who are fans of it, think it's going to change the world, to the harshest critics who think it's terrible and nothing but a scam, and then to some people in the middle. I'm not happy that it has ended up in the infrastructure bill like this. I have some concerns that probably some of the crypto world shares with me, but then I also have concerns about ways that regulators may have hamstrung themselves by putting this into the infrastructure bill. And so my understanding is that, right, this part of the bill came from the Treasury Department, and this was kind of seized on as a way to help to pay for the big infrastructure bill. And I agree with the folks in crypto who are saying that this is an acknowledgement that crypto is going to be here long term, because if you're using funds from crypto to pay for big things like infrastructure, that is saying that, no, we don't plan to do away with this altogether. We're going to figure out how to live with it. 
I think that the Treasury Department was probably surprised. Policymakers were surprised by the heat that was brought by the crypto industry in all of this. And the senators certainly realized that, oh my gosh, we don't know enough about this at all. The scrambling that was happening to understand these systems at a deeper level is not something that you want to do, right, with the 11th hour before passing a must-pass bill. All of that thinking and learning should have happened long before. I would guess that policymakers have learned some lessons about what they need to learn. You know, I'm on Twitter, so I follow the conversations and have definitely seen the big players in crypto talking about forming their better lobbying efforts. So, I mean, do you think that lawmakers will think twice about uh, sort of jamming something like this into a bill that has nothing to do with crypto? So I may be naive. <laughs> My preference in all of this would actually be to have this process that I've described, right? To have a, a really good process that recognizes that we've been trying to shoehorn crypto into a very fragmented regulatory structure that it does not fit neatly within. And my ideal would be for people to recognize that, take the analysis up a level and higher than the existing regulatory bodies and not just have like the SEC figuring out, you know, what can it do about crypto with its authority and the CFTC figuring out what it can do with its authority, et cetera. I'd rather take it up a level and figure out what is a sensible regulatory regime. And then let's figure out how do we, you know, either distribute that amongst our existing regulatory agencies or do we need a new structure to address it? So I've been told by a number of people that that is naive and you just have to work with what you've got. We may be in a world where that's the best that regulators feel that they can do because we have gridlock in Congress, utter gridlock, that there is no way to get comprehensive legislation through at this point so that the regulators really just have to do it in this kind of piecemeal way. I worry that over the past number of years, some of the regulators may have lost some credibility. I follow the discussions amongst the crypto sector about, well, the SEC says there's clarity on what is the security and what is not, but the crypto sector feels there very much is not clarity about this. There is great uncertainty and kind of skepticism about, well, why do certain projects get picked out for enforcement and then maybe get a slap on the wrist? And we're seeing, you know, others just get by with doing, seemingly doing the same thing, but no consequences. So I'm concerned about that, and I feel like that is a byproduct of this fragmented regulatory structure that we have. So with the bill that we currently have that ended up going to the House, where we do have this blanket definition of a broker that includes cryptocurrency actors, how do you see the optimal way forward? What can be done at this point when neither of the amendments uh, suggested in the Senate passed? And we just have this bill. And as you said, we probably will have to work with what we have. Yeah, this is where I probably start to disagree with the fans of crypto. I think that all of this debate arose because it's very hard to distinguish between miners and brokers in some ways. And we haven't had that discussion because we've continued to talk about how there are no intermediaries in these systems. Okay, Miners do process transfers of crypto assets for consideration, for money. They are paid to do that. And the government was trying to go after exchanges in this case because they process transfers of crypto assets for money. But I think that the Senate was just beginning to hone in on maybe what are some of the differences that are really exist between miners and crypto exchanges. 
once we recognize those differences, let's think about what the policy rationale is for then treating them differently. I'm hoping that this does kind of flesh out this more in-depth discussion of distinguishing these crypto actors from actors that we see in the traditional financial system. I think that in the House, we are going to see a much more full-fledged discussion of this because we have a lot of congressmen and women who are really kind of into crypto will want to see this fleshed out, I think. There's so many blockchains and NFT marketplaces these days, and none of them work together. Introducing Unique One Network, the easy way to build multi-blockchain DeFi-enabled NFT marketplaces, where instead of picking your favorite blockchain, you let your users and creators pick for themselves. Powered by Polkadot, Unique One Network lets you service NFT creators and collectors across art, photography, philanthropy, gaming, finance, and more. So do yourself a favor and head over to uniqueone.network now to learn more. That's uniqueone.network to learn more. So a couple of days ago, uh, the president of Minneapolis Fed, Neil Kashkari, was quoted as saying that uh, cryptocurrency is, uh, I think, 95% fraud, hype, noise, and confusion. And while I think we all would agree that there's certainly a lot of those things in crypto, 95% is quite a lot. I'm wondering like, if his analysis is worth thinking about. Why should we even bother you know, trying to put up guardrails around a space that is so rife with this sort of activity rather than getting rid of it? That's what I think education can do, right, is ideally come to this middle ground. So I absolutely think that there is plenty of fraud and scams and stuff in crypto. But I also have come to, I followed a lot of the, the technologists for a while. And maybe again, this is me being naive, but I do believe that they're working towards something. I don't know if they'll be able to achieve what they're working towards. The skeptic in me says that it's still utopian and we're going to end up with a lot of the flaws that we do in our existing financial system that are market failures that are appropriate for regulation. But I'm not comfortable throwing it all out altogether. And also maybe because so much of this really does stem from a lack of trust in existing institutions and saying that the way that we've been doing it is not working anymore. And also seeing it as a backup generator or something for the institutions as as significant as sovereign nations like the U.S. and and others where, man, we're seeing the world fall apart in so many different ways. One of the points you made in in the op-ed, which I thought was interesting, which was basically that people tend to underestimate the importance of crypto, that it's a $2 trillion industry and increasingly important, particularly with stable coins and some of the services built on top. Do you think there's a sort of lack of understanding of how big this industry has grown and, and, and what it can really do in the future? Uh, and it's sort of been relegated to this niche status when it's really quite a yeah. big deal already? Yeah. So um, I think it's kind of been like this sneak attack in plain sight, right? That regulators at the very beginning and policymakers were seeing this very much as a fringe thing that this is not a financial stability risk. It's, it's tiny in scale. And Maybe if it scales and maybe we have to start thinking about it more seriously and all this while, right, it's been sneakily growing and everyone's been building. And I think that we really are at the point where you have to view this as we have a traditional financial system and it's, you know, hugely scaled and you have a crypto financial system. And while it's, you know, nowhere near the scale of the uh, traditional one, it is of a scale that is to be appreciated. And I feel like maybe some blinders are coming off, like 
ooh, we've been sleeping while this has been happening and now it's so big and what do we do about it? And we still don't understand it. There is urgency to the education efforts and to deep and committed policy thinking about this at the highest levels in government. And possibly, again, me being the idealist, I would love to see some sort of international collaboration more than has been happening so far amongst financial regulators. Talking about the international collaboration, by the way, I think you said earlier that all these regulatory moves that are taking place now in the U.S. uh, will also have a global impact on the crypto industry. So I wonder how you see whether it be this infrastructure bill or anything that can follow it, how can it impact the crypto industry and the crypto users globally? Well, I think that what the U.S. does at this point still has very important impacts abroad in terms of many times the U.S. will be a leader on a regulatory matter and others will use that as a framework to to build their own regulations. It can also have the impact of people in the industry having to respond to what the U.S. regulations are, and that may mean that they go elsewhere. It's kind of a cat and mouse game of regulatory arbitrage. But that's why I think these efforts to collaborate internationally amongst regulators are going to be really important. So you avoid that cat and mouse kind of game. I mean, I think that's kind of what we've been seeing with uh, what's happening with Binance, for instance. They're trying to figure out where to be and building a much more robust compliance system in their business, it sounds like. But I think we can't avoid the situation where there will be a patchwork of regulation. Like, I don't see that, say, China will coordinate fully with the U.S. uh, to like work out some common ground here and many countries will just go on their own because you've been watching this space for so long and you have a comprehensive view of it. I I wonder what you think if we have this patchwork of regulation around the world, would that actually harm the global crypto ecosystem or in fact it will help it thrive in between the different systems, in these cracks where one regulatory system ends and another hasn't, another, the other yeah. one hasn't started yet, maybe that's a good, well, a good place for crypto to thrive, actually. So it's really interesting because the reasons there are regulatory drivers, like policy reasons for regulating, is because crypto hasn't fully met its claims of decentralization and getting rid of power concentrations. Okay. So if regulations, this a patchwork of regulations, helps crypto to truly decentralize and truly get rid of power levers, then maybe everyone can be comfortable. How can it help it, though? With the existing system where regulation, it's been pretty hands-off, like, say, in the U.S., right? And I think that is part of the reason that we're seeing all of the, the big money and the players from the existing financial sector come into it now like Michael Saylor, Jack Dorsey, Andreessen Horowitz, they see opportunities here to lead, to have power, to have wealth concentration in the crypto realm as well. Now, if there is regulation that puts up guardrails and tames these opportunities a bit, I think that's not a bad thing. At least in major economies, you won't have the big players like fully taking control of crypto. So that's actually one of my worries right now is seeing these players, particularly Jack Dorsey is coming in and, you know, I want to build Bitcoin and be involved in every aspect of what makes Bitcoin run. 
I'm often criticized for pointing out potential conflicts of interest here, but I see them all over it. So what you're talking about right here reminds me a lot of uh, some of the criticisms that the creator of Dogecoin, Jackson Palmer, put forward. Mm -hmm. You know, it was his Twitter thread was roundly criticized in the crypto space. But then again, you're no stranger to facing that kind of criticism very bravely, I'd say, because crypto Twitter is not a fun place. But (laughs) I digress, basically said that crypto has become you know, just another plaything for the rich. Yeah. Uh, and I think that you're echoing aspects of that and talking about how Andreessen Horowitz, how Michael Saylor, how these people are participating. How do yeah. you think about all that? Yeah. So I am skeptical of these claims that, look, crypto is so much better than what came before. Yeah, we'll acknowledge our failures now about the internet because it led to concentrations of power that we're very uncomfortable with. Google said, don't be evil. Well, crypto says you can't be evil. I'm sorry, but that's a load of BS. (laughs) I mean, people can absolutely exploit their positions of power within crypto and are doing so regularly. I'm skeptical of this because I, I feel like this is yet another kind of mythology that the power players are coming in to exploit. The internet, the beginning of the conversations about the internet was that it was this great democratizing force and the world was going to be all fresh and new and no more power concentrations and everyone was going to be free and, you know, la la la. I see the same kind of story happening with crypto and I'm just as skeptical. Do you think that the actual concern of the regulation at this moment is the wealth concentration? Because to me, it means that it's all the other things they're thinking about. They're thinking about the fact that they can tax crypto. They're thinking of the fact that there is not enough licensing and maybe they should control what different players in this, in this field do. While you say that an important thing to consider would be how certain people are concentrating power and the wealth in their hands and making this space not as decentralized as it was supposed to be, disregarding the realities of the mainstream economy and policies. So do you think the regulators even think about this problem of the power and wealth concentration in crypto at this point? So I think that some of the questions that I got from the senators during my testimony and also as they were preparing and wanting to understand what my research was about, they were about those types of issues. Like, is it, is it truly, you know, this democratized world where there are not powerful people who can sway outcomes that affect, affect regular people, right? They wanted to understand this. But of course, I don't think that's the only driver for regulation here, that big, big people like Dorsey and Saylor and stuff can come in and, and shape things. I think there are drivers for regulation in the behaviors that we're seeing um, from miners exploiting their positions in the system to be able to profit on their own behalf by ordering transactions to their benefit or to sell, to monetize that right that they have to order transactions. I think that we need to be thinking about this from an infrastructural point of view in that we now have systems like Bitcoin and Ethereum that are infrastructure for stuff being built on top of them. So Bitcoin doesn't have a huge layer two yet, but absolutely people are wanting to build it. Ethereum does have a huge layer two, which means that everything that happens at layer two, the entire DeFi world sits on ultimately the shoulders of those five core developers who developed the you know, Ethereum protocol maintainers. Okay? And these have been my concerns from the very, very beginning, where I was envisioning these systems as infrastructure and asking whether the governance mechanisms within them are robust enough 
to serve as the backbone of the world's financial systems. And I think we've gone in the past, since I wrote that and I was writing it in 2014, 2015, exactly what I have envisioned has come to pass, right? They are functioning more and more as infrastructure, and yet we still have these little toy governance processes at the base of it. So I think regulators need to look through into the heart of these systems and say, do we need to have a fund there to ensure that development is stable? The code is maintained through emergencies. Do we need to have duties that the software developers have to act on the benefit of the system and not, for example, Jack Dorsey's benefit if he is paying their salary? And then on that point of MEV, you know, I was watching and I was listening to your testimony in Congress and I was trying to wrap my head around that topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I read about it. I asked my colleagues about it. I'm a little too thick to understand what it really was. And then I read this story a couple of days later about how there was an NFT, you know, the, the crypto punks that are going for millions of dollars in some cases. Somebody was able to buy one for less than a cent because they had paid a miner what amounted to a 22 ETH bribe to prioritize their transaction. Uh, and so, you know, they had to pay a lot of money for it, but they, they did a little bit of arbitrage. They cut and, in line. Yeah, yeah, they cut in line. The, the article even, even described it as a bribe, which is, okay. you know, it's, it's an interesting choice of words, but I would say yeah. it's not incorrect. So, I mean, being someone who didn't really understand your argument at the beginning, looking at it and saying, oh, look, she's, a, you know, just uh, trying to cause a stir, and then yeah. actually seeing, what that looks like in practice. Now I more fully understand the need possibly to at least consider these exploitable aspects of the Ethereum yeah. infrastructure. Yeah. So I got a lot of heat after my Senate testimony for talking about MEV, minor extractable value, and for focusing on miners as intermediaries. And I think that maybe because a lot of people are not aware very much of MEV and what it is, because while the discussion of it has been out there for like two or three years now, it's only really be kind of breaking into mainstream discussion and thinking. I want to learn more about it. I know that the very smartest people in the space are working on this issue and trying to resolve it. Maybe they will be able to, but my best understanding is that it is an unresolved research question and it actually has significant impacts on the blockchain, right? It's not small amounts of money that miners are currently extracting from this privileged position that they have. So I want people to be like, well, what was she talking about? And then go and research it for themselves. That's what I saw as useful, hopefully, for policymakers from my Senate testimony is that they actually got two very different factual stories from the witnesses. So I want them to press harder and be like, wait, is she crazy or are they crazy? Where is the middle ground? You're definitely not crazy. Unfortunately, we need to begin to wrap this up. Sure. So just to give us a bit of crystal balling here, I mean, how do you expect this to play out? I mean, do you think the House will substantially change the bill when it gets there? So I think that there will be a great efforts, particularly by the crypto proponents in Congress to change the bill. But I think that there is like this freight train that is moving to get the infrastructure bill passed. And I think that those kind of larger policy drivers are going to overwhelm the policy drivers that may exist for crypto. I know that the crypto sector is going to be pushing hard to get changes in, but I don't know that that is going to be enough to stop it. Now, if they can find another $30 billion pot of money, maybe some of the big wigs in crypto should pool their money together and say, we'll just pay for the infrastructure bill. Although that's fraught with ethical problems as well, but I don't know. Um, (laughs) That's a good idea. Capital Hill extractable value. 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be regulatory capture. We'll pay you so you don't regulate us. Yeah, forget that. Strike that. Can I just ask one unrealistic question about the imaginary world where we can imagine the regulator will just uh, leave the crypto alone? Do you think that the crypto would be able to regulate itself as it was initially supposed to be? But do you think that can be reality, like in kind of imaginary sure. world? Right. I mean, that is the whole premise of crypto is that crypto economic systems are designed, right, with uh, game theory and thinking through all the economic incentives that the players within the system will have to self-regulate, right? That is the entire goal, to constrain the players in particular ways where nobody is able to exploit their position in a way that will prevent the system from running effectively. I think that is a utopian dream. <laughs> I, I see market failures within the existing systems, and I know that Again, the very smartest people in the space are working on building new systems to address the flaws that, that existed in the, the crypto economics of the earlier systems, right? But I'm left with something I've raised on Twitter that I'm hoping to write a paper about soon. I'm left with the worry of when the crypto economics of a system are busted because the world has changed since the system was designed, right? There are new incentives that the miners in the system might have because they can cover the positions to where they actually profit from bringing down the system instead of having to worry about its long-term stability and success. The incentives have changed. What do you do with that crypto asset and that system out there whose game theory has, is now stale and it's too hard to change the game theory because of the existing game theory in the system, right? So I think that that's going to be a worry that is coming up and is absolutely something that policymakers need to analyze from both a risk and a you know, possible regulation perspective. I think it's utopian to think that crypto economics is perfect. Thank you very much, Angela, for coming on the show and for being such a uh, reasonable presence on Twitter amidst so much unreasonableness. So thank you. It's fun. <laughs> Thanks so much. See I thought that was great, guys. What did you think? It was really interesting. On one hand, she's been watching this field from, I don't know, like 2013. She's been in there for a really long time and uh, she understands the merit of the whole concept and stuff. And at the same time, she has a realistic view of the role that regulation maybe should play in all of that. So her view just feels like kind of really balanced. It's uh, hard to disagree with her that, that crypto's vision of itself might be a little too utopian at the moment when you look at the space <laughs> and you see, you know, this hack for 600 million, that crypto punk getting uh, snapped up by a bribe to miners. I mean, this is a system that attempts to regulate itself, but you really, I uh, mean, not really. <laughs> no, not yet. Yeah, not really. It, it has guardrails set up and those guardrails can be exploited by those who understand how the system works. But then I still have some reservations about the thought that, you know, those guardrails should be established from the inside, I'm more tend to think that people who play this game, let's call it that, should know what games they're playing and uh, be aware of that and just understand that this game can play them at any point rather than hope that, you know, some big guys will come and help them out when they're on the wrong side of, of the deal. That's what I think. Maybe because I haven't lost any significant amount of money in crypto yet. Maybe <laughs> this is why I'm thinking so just, you know, for a time being. Let's have see. any of us been subject to a hack before? Not to like that, no. 
Personally, well, I mean, no, I guess I I've think... I've lost this is years and years ago in 2015 or well before I was even I don't even think I knew about Coindesk at that point. This is a true story. I purchased a cryptocurrency called Spank Chain because I thought it sounded funny, mm. bought it on some New Zealand exchange that proceeded to go belly up later on. And so my my Spank Chain, I think the coin is called Booty. This is all true. I think that it is lost to the sands of time. You got spanked. I got spanked, <laughs> yeah. And I lost well, all my money. For um, everyone who doesn't remember what spank chain is, it it was a system for rewarding the sex workers, I think. I just thought the name was funny. I think that is what it was for, but I just thought the name was funny. Okay, Danny, just for the readers. Look, it was 2015. I was I was in high school, okay? I was continued to <laughs> do and was exactly doing That's no exactly what you things. do when you're in high school. Oh, my. <laughs> Anyway, but that's interesting. What was it? Cryptopia? What was the yes? Deal? That's the one. It was Cryptopia. Yeah, that was kind of a famous. I don't even know if people agreed if that was hack or an exit scam or whatever. I don't remember the story. Good episode, and I'm glad we got to spank chain eventually. All roads lead back to getting spanked. In crypto. Exactly. The people deserve <laughs> to hear the story of the spank chain. The I world mean, needs the, to know about this. The the, the people deserve absolutely, to know. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I just want to. I think that Angela Welsh is a very unusual person because she knows the sector deeply. She understands the technology. She researches it. And yet she's skeptical. So I think there are a lot of skeptics out there that just sort of think it's a scam or whatever, which is not a particularly interesting criticism because obviously there are scams, but that shouldn't like color the whole sector. And there's some other critics like Rubini who just want to sort of have a sort of profession of crypto skepticism without really investing any time and energy in it. And she's someone who really understands regulation. She understands crypto and yet she's skeptical. And I think she's a, a vital voice in, in this industry that we should definitely be listening more to. And I think it's shocking how particularly women skeptics like Welsh and also I think Francis Coppola get treated on Twitter by mostly guys who just kind of shout at these, these skeptics who, who are only trying to um, improve debate and deserve a hearing and uh, don't deserve to be kind of catwalled by these uh, idiots with their uh, Twitter accounts. Wow. Throwing some flames. I don't disagree with anything you said there, but you're really laying down the law there. I yeah, just I mean, want to say it's very healthy and good that we have people like Welch in the exactly. crypto community and in the crypto Twitter. Exactly. Yeah. And like the ability to go before Congress and talk about something like MEV, which, as I said, I yeah. personally was not familiar with. And then it, even after that, it took me actually seeing an example of it to really understand what it is and what the problems are that it can cause. It's very cool to see a skeptic understand an, a, an issue on a technical standpoint that's so deeply that they can, you know, bring this to light or attempt to bring it to light. Definitely. All right, guys. Thanks very much for doing this. I thought it was a good show today. This has been Opinionated. That was Angela Welsh. And thanks very much to her. This is Anna Bedakova. Thank you, everyone. And this is Danny Nelson, the irreplaceable, unique Danny Nelson, the real the, Danny Nelson. The, the eternally spanked Danny Nelson. <laughs> and, and I'm Ben Schiller, and thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. You've been listening to Opinionated with Ben Schiller, Anna Batakova, Danny Nelson, and guest Angela Walsh. Today's show is produced, announced, and edited by Michelle Mousseau, with additional production support by Eleanor Paul. Our theme music by Ellison. Have any questions or comments, send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.